Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. So, what did we watch? Well, Kevin, we watched The Third Man, a 1949 British film starring Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard. The whole gang. Who directed it and who wrote it? Two of my faves. Carol Reed uh, directed the film. And so you, you say he's one of your favorites. Whatever films of his well, have you I, seen and enjoyed? Um, well, I really like Odd Men Out because it's Irish. Good, Good times. Have you seen that one? Not seen Odd Man Out. What 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 do, what by I know you like him too. What what by him do you like? I enjoy the Fallen Idol, mm-hmm. and uh, it was written by Mr. Graham Greene, one of my favorite authors. What about him strikes the cane fancy? Oh my God, so much. Um, I mean, uh, just all the Catholic stuff strikes the cane fancy, and I also uh, love all the spy stuff. Catholic spy stuff. I mean, you know. Graham Greene himself divides his fiction from his, between his entertainments, which he considered lesser than, 
um, kind of spy stories, uh, just espionage, intrigue, um, and then his like real works, basically, which are often a little more overtly Catholic and meditative. So how did he classify his film work? I think probably beneath the entertainments, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think that was pretty much like he, he, he did certain things, you know, to make a living and, you know, come up as a writer. And uh, this is one of the entertainments, I think. But it's wonderful. He was so snobby. It's like, oh, I'm doing so much good work. Some of it's just crap, though. It's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> that sounds like you, though. No. <laughs> Except none of my work is good. <laughs> the only difference is talent. <laughs> yeah, I love Graham Greene. Um, and uh, this is actually not my introduction to him. Um, but we, uh, I did, this was one of the, probably the second book by him that I read. We had to read this in, uh, 12th grade at my high school and I fell in love because I, I think in like 10th grade we had to read the 10th man, which is also by Graham Greene. And I was kind of like, eh. but then when we, once we upped the number of men or, or reduced the number of men, I suppose, just three men, I loved it. So why you were in senior, why didn't you do 12 angry men? <laughs> I don't know. We messed up. We should have done the third man in third grade. <laughs> that would have been great. Ninth grade then, uh, or eighth grade rather, do eight man out. Exactly. Number puns. <laughs> We're having fun. Are we? <laughs> no. Um, I think. Uh, but yeah, this is one of my, this is maybe one of my favorite movies. What about it uh, earns that accolade? Oh, I remember it blew my mind in high school. I was like, this is so good. But I, I've seen it a number of times since. Um, just the the mood. You know, the dialogue is so snappy. The mood of post-war Vienna. You're seeing the, this beautiful city lying in, in sort of ruin. Um, the the dark, cynical attitude on the world. Uh, the sense of mystery. Um, you know, some of the scenes are just really breathtaking, I think. You know, the use of shadow, light, angles. <laughs> uh, just, yeah. It's, it's, a really, it's a really incredible visual experience and i think storytelling experience and the, and the music is very evocative and haunting it's beautiful it's a zither music very very kind of jaunty sounding to me um which which does lend it a haunting quality because it'll be playing when like something really bad is happening and and you'll be like it's it's a dissonance that's really really effective i was i was thinking Whenever, whenever I hear that song, I feel like I hear that song that plays throughout the film in my head whenever I'm doing something like useless and futile and just like having a bad time. Like if like Lanny is disrespecting us on our <laughs> daily walk and pulling on the leash. Um, you shouldn't talk about our son that way. That's our dog, Kevin. <laughs> it, <laughs> now, Kevin Greenlee, <laughs> you, settle, you settle down. <laughs> But you know, it's like it's it's just has this kind of bounce to it that is almost inappropriate in times in this film that is a uh, has some pretty nasty things in it. How'd this movie open? We start with Mr. Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, uh, arriving in Vienna. Uh, it's it's after World War II. He is a pulp writer. Well, don't we have some narration first? Oh right! How do I? I, I, I love this part. Um, I'm 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 goofing off. <laughs> You're asleep at the switch. I'm like Holly Martin's. I'm just I'm just blundering through this whole thing. 
trying my best and failing at every turn. <laughs> um, so we start with Major Calloway. He's a central character, uh, and he also serves as the narrator for the opening. And it almost starts with him. Uh, it's almost like you're getting a drink with him at the bar or like going out for lunch with him. And he's going to tell you all the gossip on this situation that happened. And it's it, it kind of establishes the sort of direction the film it has because you open up as he's talking and, and it's showing you all these uh, incredible shots of uh, post-war Vienna and, you know, the, these this beautiful architecture, uh, some of which is lying in a heap because it's been bombed Um and, you know, he's kind of going through it. And there's some fun visual gags to start off with. He talks about, um, he establishes that there's been a huge explosion in racketeering since the war ended. And you, he talks about how amateurs don't really get far. And you see like a dead body floating in the river, the Danube. And, um, and but it's apparent that this is now sort of a, a den of kind of some shady characters now that World War II is over. So I, I was curious, uh, Calloway is an important character in the story, but he's a supporting character. He's not one of the main characters. So why do you suppose they made the choice to make him the narrator, the voice of the movie? It's been a while since I read it, but isn't the book all Calloway's narration? I believe he narrates the book. Yeah, Major Calloway na narrates the book, so I think that was just a hold holdover from Graham's original storytelling. My theory... And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a literary critic or well versed in this, but my theory is that I think the character of Holly Martins, um, who I believe actually had a different name in the, in the, in the published story, um, but that is sort of a self own of Green himself, because he, he's a pulp writer. He's kind of a mess. He drinks too much. He likes unavailable women. That all sounds very much Green esque, or at least how he perceives himself. And I think that maybe by having Calloway narrate it, he's kind of distancing himself from that character a little bit, where he's able to kind of uh, pull out of it a little bit and, and kind of make fun of that guy. Like, look at this clown. He's like making fun of himself in a way. And Major Calloway allows, himself, allows him to do that, um, you know. Because Calloway pretty clearly uh, has no great amount of respect for... Uh... Joseph Cotton's character, Holly Martin. Yeah, nor should he, frankly, <laughs> if in fairness, that was one thing that didn't really strike me, I think, until like more recent viewings is that, you know, the main character in this is kind is kind of like the definition of a well-meaning dumbass. Like he he does mean well. He's not a bad person. He's not a bad guy. But good Lord, it's relatable because I think every every one of us has been there in a situation where you're you really want to do the right thing. And you just don't know how to go about it. And you're kind of just fucking everything <laughs> up. Or at least I have. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not to this degree, but still. Well, there was that time a couple of weeks ago when you tried to make pancakes. Oh, yeah. That was led to some shadowy chases through the streets. <laughs> Shot in beautiful black and white. <laughs> so the story itself gets underway wherein uh, Joseph Cotton's character, Holly Martin, comes to Vienna at the invitation of his friend, Harry Lime, who has offered uh, Holly a job in Vienna. And uh, Holly needs a job. He's uh, kind of a down-on-his-luck uh, writer. Uh, things aren't going so well for him. doesn't have a penny to his name, we're told. 
Absolutely. He is struggling. But when he uh, gets to uh, the, the I guess, whatever, the train station or the airport, where I mean, I don't, I don't know how he travels in here, but when he arrives in Vienna, he's kind of surprised because his friend isn't even there to meet him. That's kind of strange. Weird. But I'm sure it'll clear up in a few seconds, there's right? Nothing, there's nothing ominous about it, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Lyme isn't standing there at the airport with a little sign being like, best friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Cotton's a little worried, um, and his worries do not abate when he shows up at the place where uh, Harry lives. What does he find out there, Kevin? Uh, he learns that his friend Harry Lyme has just died in a tragic car accident. And in fact, his uh, funeral is going to happen that very day, even as they speak. It's a rough introduction to Vienna. <laughs> Welcome to Vienna. Your friend is dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love this movie so much. <laughs> so he rushes over to the cemetery, catches the end of the funeral. And uh, the Trevor Howard character, uh, Calloway, the narrator of the movie, sees him there, gets kind of interested in him, wants to know who this fella is, and so gives him a ride to a bar. And they uh, exchange some drinks, gets to know each other a little bit. This is where we learn a little bit more about uh, Holly's background. He's a, a pulp writer. He writes cheap novelettes like with titles like Lone Writer of uh, Santa Fe. And in this scene and throughout the movie, we also see that Holly has kind of a pulp writer's mentality because the stories in the pulps of that time were very simple-minded, very black and white, a very obvious morality, very even cliched. There wasn't a lot of nuance to them. And also the, the evil in them was also very blunt and in-your-face. These are very simplistic stories and it reflects how uh, holly sees the world yes also as a very american worldview because his immediate instinct upon coming to vienna a city he's never been to and knows nothing about and which is now under control of the four remaining world powers post-world war ii um and it's divided into uh america the america section the russia section the french section and the british section calloway is one of the representatives of the British section. And in the center, all all four p forces have uh, basically like, you know, military police there making sure everything's in working order. So, right. but anyway, he has a very American view because his, his big thing is he comes in and says like, you guys don't know what you're doing. Only I can solve <laughs> the mystery here. Because Callaway breaks it to him that his friend Harry Lyme wasn't a nice fella. He was involved in racketeering. And, uh... Holly refuses to believe that, and he says he is going to prove the police wrong and vindicate the good name of his friend. He sounds like a true crime podcaster here. So, or, or he sounds like a character in a pulp story, mm -hmm. which Calloway points out. You, you, you're acting like you, you want to live in one of your stories. He's kind of uh, calling him out on the pulp nature of his thinking. And, one th and the implication there that's implicit at this point is that in the course of the movie, we can imagine that uh, Cotton is going to get educated and become more mature and recognize that the world is a hell of a lot more complicated than he imagines. Uh, 
And one thing that I find kind of interesting to about all of this, which this is as good a place as any to mention, mm-hmm. is it is kind of a complicated, nuanced story. Uh, there's not like a pulp story, but later on, it, uh, the story kind of becomes more pulp-like in a different format because in the 50s, they did a radio show called The Adventures of Harry Lime, which was a prequel to this this show. Are you shitting me? No. Oh, my God. And in this one, Harry Lime, played by Orson Welles, is more of a lovable rogue type character. (laughs) And so it's very pulpish, and it almost uh, reads, it plays like the scripts were written by Holly Martins. Oh, my God. So it's kind of odd to me that there is kind of an implicit rejection of the pulp mentality. And then in a few years, Harry Lime will once again live and, ex- and uh, be an exemplar of the pulp mentality. Harry Lime rides again. <laughs> it's a prequel. It opens up with Orson Welles saying something. Oh, you know, Harry Lime died by a gunshot in the sewers of Vienna. Spoiler warning. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Kevin. <laughs> but before he died, he lived many different lives. I'll tell you about some of them now, folks. Oh, my God. That's so cheesy. I love that. He might have killed some kids, but, you know, nobody's perfect. He's just a little bit of a rogue, just kind of a rascal. He's kind of a silly guy. (laughs) He's kind of a lovable con man. Oh, I love that. Wow. That's incredible. Are there any, I mean, like, there's definitely been, like, makeovers or, like, you know, like, oh, this, this character's kind of awful, but then people end up making them nicer in different adaptations but that's that's pretty crazy or you become nicer in sequels you're talking to me about the fast and the furious oh my god wow wow they fast and furious harry lime (laughs) in fast and furious if you guys don't watch it fantastic franchise um in the later uh installations every uh every movie seems to end with the gang gathering together to break bread eat as a family because they are a family, uh, a chosen family. And uh, Vin Diesel gives a speech about family. And oftentimes they welcome in villains from previous episodes or previous movies. You know, even villains who've killed members of the group. It's maddening. But anyways, so, you know, I mean, I guess you could just say Fast and Furious is following in the the, uh, esteemed film tradition started by uh, the third man franchise, <laughs> <laughs> the third man expanded universe. Wow. Uh, and if anyone is interested, uh, all 52 episodes of this radio show are pretty easily found on the internet. Oh my God. I love that. See, like people always complain about Hollywood today, duh, 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 like, you know, cheapens all these things. And like, obviously, obviously that's true. But like, if they could have done that in the fifties, they would have. If, yeah. they, if it was going to make money, if they knew it was going to make money. I mean, they're trying to do that with the radio thing. Yeah, Orson Welles does it, gives an iconic performance in this movie that's indelible. And then to make a quick buck, he does uh, 52 episodes of a radio show. It's <laughs> great. I love that. Drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, back to back to the bar where uh, uh, Martins and Calloway are talking Martins does not want to hear this. He's really upset, and he's gonna he's gonna figure out the real mystery of what happened to his his dear friend, who we find out he knew for uh, twenty years. He grew up with him. They always got into all sorts of trouble together, and um, he means a lot to him. Why does he mean so much to him? Um, he makes a comment at this point, say, indicating that before 
uh, Harry came along into his life, he was quite lonely. So you get the sense that, you know, this is kind of an awkward guy. It's not a guy who necessarily has huge social support to draw on. And this Harry guy really injected a lot of color and excitement into his life, you know, from childhood onward. But meanwhile, we're going to get into another kind of pulp classic. Mistaken identity ensues. Uh, that's a pretty common trope in kind of silly thriller uh, fiction. Um, but in this case, it's a lot less exciting <laughs> and a lot more realistic because a bunch of fancy British cultural people who are trying to, I guess, denazify uh, post-war Vienna through culture, um, based on some um, kind of accidental misunderstandings, end up thinking that Holly uh, is a esteemed American author. And they invite him to a an event. And we'll leave that there for now. But, you know, you know, wackiness is going to happen a little bit later. We'll get back to it. Hoisting upon pretards might occur. <laughs> yes. Oh, indeed. I, I, I wasn't I've never been a pulp author, but I did ghostwrite a bunch of romance ebooks. And I can tell you that some of the some of the professional things that happen to Joseph Cotton in this movie were definitely are definitely the stuff of nightmare for me. <laughs> In terms of like, hey, you write good stuff. Why don't you talk about it? Oh, uh. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> yeah. So, poor Joseph Cotton. <laughs> so then, um, Cotton gets a call from a person who says he is another friend of Harry's, and he heard, you know, he saw him at the funeral. Maybe let's meet up. This guy is named Kurt, and he always carries around uh, a small dog with him, which is a very distinctive visually, very interesting. Because he has kind of a menacing appearance and a slightly menacing manner, but then he's uh, petting this dog. How bad could he be? He's a good guy. And he tells, uh, uh, he tells Joseph Cotton all about Harry's death, gives him the whole scoop. It was a tragic accident. Harry saw a friend across the street, and uh, was going to greet him, uh, well, uh, you know, and, and Kurtz was watching this, and a truck comes speeding around the corner and hit Harry, and he he died. And and that's that's it. Don't ask any more questions. Don't worry about it. That's all that happened. Yeah, you may as well even go home. Maybe you should just go. Your it's, friend's dead, after all. How does uh? So I assume at this point, Holly just does say, "Oh, you have a good point." See you see around. Roll and then, the credits. In the picture. It. That's yeah. it. That's the third man. <laughs> well, good night, everybody. It was the third character you met. That's what it referred to. Um, no, in fact, uh, Holly Holly won't let it go. He wants to find the truth. That doesn't really sound like something that could happen. How random that, you know. Uh, and, and this guy just seems so evasive. So um, he gets the name of, uh, he gets the, well, I guess he gets the workplace of Harry's girlfriend from Kurtz. Where she works is kind of a nightclub entertainer or a performer yeah, like in a, a review. Yeah, yeah. He goes there, he sneaks backstage, and he whispers to her, uh, I was a friend of Harry Lime. And she tells him to meet her backstage after the show. And um, they talk, and it becomes pretty clear uh, early on that this this woman who is is played by Alita Vali, um, you know, was deeply in love with Harry, um, and is very broken by his death. In fact, she even says she wishes she was dead as well. And she seems to be going through a lot of this picture, 
sort of through the motions of life where like she, she there's a very deep undercurrent of sadness even when she's kind of not actively thinking about it and at one point in this scene she even wonders aloud is it possible that his death wasn't really an accident at all at that point the zither music becomes quite loud and intense as it is wont to do (laughs) um and 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 in fact some of the details of the uh accident as we hear about them uh, bit by bit start seeming more and more odd the person driving the car that killed him happened to be harry lime's own driver harry lime's own doctor happened to be strolling by harry lime's close friend uh kurtz just happened to be there too just that seems pretty coincidental doesn't it very personal uh, accidental death yeah it doesn't quite add up to holly and it turns out there was somebody else there. There was a third man there who did not give uh, any evidence at the inquest. Pretty strange. Pretty strange. And that little detail is re- uh, is, is reported to Holly uh, via the porter who works at Harry's building. He's an old uh, Austrian gentleman, and uh, but he gets a little bit freaked out because Holly is asking a lot of questions. And he's one of the people that start. Everybody seems to be telling Holly. Just go home. Go home, man. Stop stop stirring up this hornet's nest. Yeah. Of course, that makes Holly want to stay even more. Because that's what a hero in a pulp novel would do. How do you think that, how do you think you would honestly react to that? Like, if you were in a situation like that, and people were just like, Kevin, Kevin, just go the fuck home. Get the fuck out of here. And they're like throwing <laughs> things at you, and they're spitting at you. What would, I mean, that's not actually happening in this movie. But you know what I mean? Like, that's the vibe. What would you, do you think that would make you want to stay more? Or do you think you'd actually want to get the hell out of there? I think it'd make me want to stay more because I'm, I'm cursed with insatiable curiosity. I like to figure things out. I think it would depend because I'm such a, I'm so like pathetically like the need to please people that if people were just like, we do not want you here, get the hell out of here. I'd be like, okay, geez, like <laughs> getting on the plane, <laughs> crying. I don't know. So it would depend if it was people I, I guess it would be like if it was a lot of people that I really respected, I think I would be like, okay, bye. And if it was a bunch of people who were like shifty characters who I think were covering up the murder of my best friend, I would be like, nah, fuck you. Yeah. When uh, I looked at a cold case involving uh, murder, there was, there was a time when a number of people started telling me, uh, you know, why are you doing this? I was one of those people. No. <laughs> <laughs> No. You tried to seduce me away from it. You, you said it was just a waste of my time. Grow up. Get yeah. a life. Get a life. Stop thinking you're a pulp hero. Get doofus. <laughs> People say this to you every day. Yes, mainly you. <laughs> and you're still here. That's right. <laughs> so it's all right. I live with you, and every morning the first thing you say is, get out of here. <laughs> Go home. Why are you here? Oh, no. No, I'm so nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously something's pretty fishy in Vienna, and um, we get an interesting glimpse into what is really important to this woman because there is a scene. She and Holly go back to her place, and there's some police there searching it, mm-hmm. and they're taking her passport papers, which are very crucial to her ability to work and travel throughout vienna 
very, very important to a person yeah. in Vienna at you that need time. Your papers. They take that from her and she barely blinks an eye, but they're also taking with them uh, a few love letters she got from Harry Lyme and that really, really upsets her. And so it's obvious the love letters mean more to her than the passport. I want to say I really loved her performance as actress, but I also like it would have been so easy in like the 1940s, 1950s to make this character really hysterical and be like, those are my love letters. Ah, you know, like, cause that's how men wrote women and like I still do sometimes, but she's just so understated. Everything's kind of underplayed. She's been through a trauma and she's kind of just still going through it. She's surviving, but like barely. And you know, she's just very sad about everything. She's not like, she's not fighting with the police. She's not fighting with anybody for the most part. She's just kind of like, can I, will I get those letters back? And they're like, yeah, yeah, after we look at them. And she's kind of like, okay. And you can tell it's really deeply affecting her. I just really like the subtlety of it, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a great performance. I agree completely. Yeah, really, really under, underrated because so much is, you know, so much is said about how great this movie is and it's all correct, but she's a, she's a really great part of it. And it would have been, again, like, because women were so frequently written in this kind of, like, hysterical, crazy, you know, caricatures, basically. It's it's more striking to me. But, but yeah, things are, things are afoot in Vienna. And Holly, I think, is going to get to the bottom of them. You have a lot of confidence in the old holler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it also is pretty obvious that this, this woman uh, likes, she generally likes Holly. Why do you suppose that is? What does she see in him? Yeah, because everyone else seems kind of annoyed by him. And she seems to kind of maybe tolerate him and maybe be a little bemused by him. I mean, do you think it's it's him or do you think it is his proximity to Harry that she is attracted to? I think it's probably the proximity to Harry that uh, she loves this man who is gone because he's dead. So maybe if she spends some time with somebody who was close to Harry, maybe that brings Harry uh, a little bit closer to her, at least temporarily. What I think do you she, think? I th- yeah, I think that. I think she also appreciates Joseph Cotton for being sort of like an advocate for Harry. Like he's saying like, my friend got murdered most likely and you idiot cops aren't going to do anything about it. That's that's wrong. I want to avenge my friend. Like, Yeah, you know, all your cops are doing are just slandering his good name. Yeah. Like he... Who know everyone's in a racket in Vienna. Everybody. Like the kids are in a racket. Every every the dogs are in a racket. It's just everyone's racketeering. What could he have done that was so bad that he deserved to be murdered and then have the people who did it get away with it? That's his that's his attitude. He's saying the police are victim blaming my friend. Exactly. So he's being a good friend. And the woman is respecting that and responding to it. Absolutely. So I think the thing is about this time that the porter uh, makes the mistake of crying out from the window d- down to the street to Holly saying, hey, I'll give you the information you want. Don't worry about it. I'm a good well, fellow. Well, we, we, we missed the second man. We met the first man, Kurtz, and then the second man, okay. Popescu. I think I'm saying that right. I have no idea. He has a mustache. He's like a Romanian fellow with a mustache. And uh, he also kind of gives uh, Holly the runaround saying, you know, like you're asking a lot of questions. Why don't you just go home? Like everything's okay. It really sucks that. And this was the doctor, right? Harry said, no, it's the Romanian guy. You're oh. thinking of the doctor. You're thinking of the guy who lived in the house of the little dog. Oh, okay. Okay. Get okay. it right. You're, 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 this is the third man, sir. Got to keep it, got to keep it tight. Okay. Got to figure it out. 
You're as bumbling as Holly Martin's, Kevin. You don't know what's going on. Just zither music in your brain. This is what I have to put up with. But go on. <laughs> this is a glimpse into my daily life. That's our that's our closest uh, romantic. Uh, that's our closest couple pro- uh, in terms of fiction. It's it's Holly and Callaway. <laughs> <laughs> Just roasting you all day long. He he meets this guy. He's the second man. And Holly asks him, "Well, who is the third man?" Because the porter I talked to saw three men carrying my friend's body away and the second man of course is like no it was just me and kurtz don't worry about it don't ask questions oh and the porter told you that and and holly being a terrible journalist is like yeah the porter told me you know hope nothing bad happens to the porter but you know obviously that guy's dead um well, then the porter yells down say hey i'll tell you what you want to know holly oh well no but then they go to the doctor you gotta go in order okay they, see this he, i'm trying to cut to the chase well i'm trying to give people a sense of the how, why it's called the third man okay the doctor is not the third man because the doctor was said to have come upon the scene of harry's death later after his body was moved or after he was dead after he was dead and after the body was moved by a group of men so who is this third man so he goes to the second first man second man and the doctor and uh you know they're all kind of giving him the run around. They're all saying, oh, no, no, he, you know, it's all, it was just an accident. It sucks, but get the hell out of here. And then talk about the, the, the porter hallooing him out the window. What happens there? The porter halloos him out the window. Hello. Well, just, you know, come up after, uh, you know, in the evening, my wife won't bother me. And I'm just, you know, I'm going to tell you all about all this, uh, this juicy, important information that could get me killed. Give you all the deeds. Give it, give it, yeah. Serving up hot tea up here. Don't worry about all it. All the goss. All the hot goss. This guy's running a tea spilling channel <laughs> for Vienna in nineteen in the nineteen forties. He's yelling all this at the top of his lungs, and then he turns. We cut to inside his place, and he turns. He has a shocked look on his face. Like, Curb your enthusiasm. Music starts playing. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, he he gets murdered. Kevin, what do you make about Holly Martin's as played by Joseph Cotton's stupidity here? Like, is is he a stupid character? Is he a character who's just out of his depth? Like, what what do you what do you make of him here? Because he it seems like already he's kind of making a lot of like key errors and is kind of behaving kind of stupidly. Uh, when I think of Holly Martin's at this point. Uh, the next thing that happens in the story is Holly and the woman go outside where the porter lives and they receive the news that he has been murdered. And then almost inexplicably, inexplicably there's a little child there who's kind of cute and adorable who starts yelling, basically, Holly Martins is the murderer. I think he's saying I, he murdered my grandpa. Yes. Because he saw Holly and the grandpa arguing earlier in the movie. Right. So this is a cute kid who's causing a lot of problems for Holly. He has good intentions. He's completely off base. This cute kid doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's just messing things up. And I think Holly Martins is like that cute kid. (laughs) Really? Because he has good intentions, but he's going around messing things up he doesn't really know what he's doing he doesn't know what the facts are he's just kind of blundering around causing problems 
can you imagine how horrible it would be if you like walking down the street, got into a crowd, and then start, suddenly a little adorable kid turns and looks at you, and it's like, that's the one who did it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you say? Like, you can't be like, shut up, you little brat. Like, <laughs> we're going to look really guilty. God. Yeah, it's like almost a surreal scene when the kid does that, and all these people are, like, looking at him, and Holly doesn't speak the language so they're all basically like talking about him behind his back and it's so what do you think tense. of holly is, is he like that kid or is he like something else i think he's kind of like what would happen if you really tried to act like a pulp hero in real life without knowing what you were doing he doesn't know what he's doing all he knows how to do is write cheap books you know the lone writer of santa fe and um he's not prepared to deal with this kind of like intense real world issue or this intense real world investigation and so his good intentions only carry him so far basically he doesn't even understand what the real world is like when he thinks of racketeering he thinks oh maybe he uh sold some uh automobile tires in the black market or something that's like the worst his mind can do uh it's also interesting that not only is he not prepared to act the role of a pulp hero, he's not really prepared to act the role of a writer. Because at this part, at this stage, he gets hustled into an author's meeting. What happens there? I love it because like the standard thing in a in a, like a kind of a pulpy adventure is that like you're, you're mistaken from the wrong person and you're kidnapped and like, you know, you have to get out of it. And in this case, he's kidnapped, but it's just a guy trying to bring him to the, the author's convention. And he just makes a total ass of himself. He, I mean, it's basically like if public speaking is your worst fear, this is like your worst nightmare times 10 because you're hustled off, you're put on the podium, and now you have to speak about something that is totally out of your wheelhouse. You have people raising their hands, asking about, about James Joyce, and he's like, huh, what, uh-huh. what are books? Like... <laughs> nightmare yeah they ask him what author influenced him the most and he says zane gray and they're like ha ha good joke <laughs> and he was being serious so it it's it's like ay yay it's it and then the guy i mean the guy who invited him is like hanging his head in shame it's just it's just <laughs> it's just awful it's so awful but at the same time wouldn't it be kind of fun to go to a, a like a book signing that went this wrong and got this rowdy? Because then there's a great there's a great part where the second man, the Romanian man, comes in and is 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 kind of pointedly asking questions, and Holly is responding, and it you know it, it, to the people in the audience they have no idea what they're talking about, you know, or, or they're talking about some book, but what they're really talking about is the case and. And the Romanian guy is just like, stick, you know, you should stick to fiction. And Holly's like, I'm writing a, a murder mystery this time. And I'm, I'm going to have to get into it. And, you know, it's based on fact. And, like, they're, <laughs> they're going back and forth. And it's just great. Well, I did go to a book signing once where during the question and answer period, when the people asking the questions was shouted down by other p- members of the audience. And then the author rushed off the stage <laughs> in dismay. Were you? But let's the, go on. Were you the? No, Kevin. Just answer one question. Were you the person who was shouted down? I was not. Okay. Were you? Did you help shout them down? I, I, I may have joined the clamor a little bit. It was a book signing for uh, John Updike. Mm-hmm. 
and a member of the audience during the question and answer period, we, we, they said, oh, we have oh, plenty of time for questions. And like the second or third question, somebody stood up and said, can you do an impression of what Owen Meany's voice sounds like? So do you know what the problem is with that question? No. Owen Meany is a character in a novel written by John Irving. John oh. Irving is not John Updike. Oh, <laughs> he rushed off the stage for that. He got like all blushing and people said, no, what's wrong with you? That's <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> that's rowdy. Yeah, that was great. That's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> That might be more rowdy than even this one. And this one ends with uh, Cotton running out of running out of the book signing, running out like John Updike, <laughs> afraid for his life, um, into the uh, rubble-strewn streets of post-war Vienna. And I mean, I just want to emphasize we have we've been talking mostly about the story, but the visuals in this film are incredible. Um, lots of chase scenes on on dimly lit Vienna streets and and they're just gorgeous all these kind of dutch angles giving everything sort of a jarring look like it's a little bit the world's a little bit tilted wrong which i'm sure it felt like after world war 2 in europe <laughs> um and uh it's just it's it looks like a beautiful nightmare basically i want to live in this movie <laughs> you want to live amidst oh, the rubble oh i want to say something this is more of a you You're know putting how, your hands on your hip uh, all yeah, you, sassy yeah, style. Yeah, you know some sass is coming when I put my hands on my hips, Wonder Woman style. Um, when, like, you know when you watch, like, sitcoms set in New York and you're like, those people cannot afford that apartment. That yes. is a huge apartment. Like, this movie, some of these, some of these fucking apartments in Vienna are, like, palatial. They're, like, palatially, they're huge, ornate the furniture's gorgeous. And I'd just be curious, sound off if you're a World War II historian. I mean, that doesn't seem realistic, but how, what the, I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's a situation where, um, you know, people were getting out of Vienna in a hurry and, like, you know, we're leaving these big apartments and people were just kind of, like, renting whatever. I, I, I don't know, but it, that, that struck me as funny. It's basically like a, it's like, it's friends, <laughs> but with more murder and racketeering. <laughs> Did that strike you? That did strike me. And some of the furnishings in these places were lovely. But then, you know, here in 21st century uh, Brooklyn, New York, you can wander the streets and often find lovely things, lovely pieces of furniture just sitting out on the sidewalk by people who were moving out in a hurry. So maybe uh, something similar was going on in Vienna in the post-war. Are you comparing COVID Brooklyn to uh, post-World War II Vienna? (laughs) There's probably not as much rubble in Mm -hmm. uh, Vienna. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not as many rats. We have a lovely, lovely home here. <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty bad. And I guess overall, you know, as he's chased out of this book signing and as you know, he flounders through the book signing. This this guy is not a this guy is not like a a charismatic man. This is not a impressive man. He's a he's a man trying to do his best, frankly. And he is really in many ways like a poor substitute for the heroes he writes about. And I feel like over the course of the movie, that's dawning on him. Like he might have these good ideals. He might have a good heart. And he's realizing that in order to like function in a real life situation, that's not enough basically because he's just floundering off. Um, So he, um, 
he, he so, so many great shots. He he goes up a spiral staircase, hides in a darkened room, gets bitten by a parrot of all things, and um, does that symbolize anything? The parrot? Yeah. Is it other than like he's just kind of a klutz? I thought it was kind of like like you know you know like the classic question is like oh how'd you get that black eye? Oh well I was fighting off like five goons at once and you know you should see the other guy. And in this case, it's like, no, I just got bitten by a parrot while I was skulking out the window while I was being chased. Like, it just makes everything sound ridiculous, you know? It makes the whole thing sound ridiculous. That's that's my theory. I think it's around this point that Callaway decides it's time to uh, take Holly to school and let him know what Lime's really been up to in mm-hmm. Vienna. And what does Callaway tell him? Uh, well, Callaway has a great line about Holly, which I also uh, agree with, with, you were born to be murdered. <laughs> I feel like that's us too, because you and I don't know when to quit in terms of being curious and and getting involved in stuff. So, born to be murdered squad rise up. But it, so Callaway um starts showing Holly evidence of the extent of Harry's crime, and at first, uh, Joseph. Co- what is the, what is the crime? It's okay. So basically, the scheme was that they uh, the racketeers led by Harry stole a bunch of penicillin um which is you know there's a shortage of in post-war vienna they stole it and they diluted it in order to make it go further and then they started selling it back to people and the problem with that is when you you know diluting penicillin obviously makes it less effective and um a lot of people died as a result of this and got very very sick and the and the human um you know the the consequences on a human level are very clear and 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 one one that is particularly um resonant and particularly upsetting is the fact that a group of children who caught meningitis were given this penicillin and either died or went insane basically like their brains stopped functioning and um that is uh you know, that really captures Holly's attention because at first he is very much pushing back and saying, well, you know, you don't have any evidence and I don't think Harry would do that. And after being introduced to this file on Harry, he ends up dropping that and concluding that Harry did do this and was a bad person. And I just was struck by like, like they have so little to do or whatever, or like they have so like, Things are so dysfunctional in post-war Vienna that the British police are just kind of like, you know what? Yeah, you can look in the case file. Go nuts. <laughs> like, just to prove a point to somebody. <laughs> You're annoying me with your dumb questions. Take a look. Your friend's an <laughs> asshole. So is there anyone from your past you could imagine being some huge uh, villainous racketeer? Yes. Who? Me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think there. I, I definitely met people in college where if I went to some far flung city that was having a crisis and they were, they were there and they were doing some sketchy shit, I would be like, hmm. So, uh, cotton goes back to, uh, Valley's, uh, apartment, uh, and, uh, in, is, is introduced to another very important character in this film. And, and who is that? Kevin. Uh, that character is, uh, the lady's cat. So he goes back to her apartment and while they're there, starts playing with her cat. And we find out that this cat, 
only likes Harry. And the cat bolts. I just like how at first you think like, oh, this is just like a weird little scene because uh, Joseph Cotton is like dangling a little string in front of the cat and is like, ooh, ooh, like, and the cat just like walks away and you're right. like, what the hell was the point of that? <laughs> or at least every time that scene happens, it takes me by surprise because I'm like, oh, that's a cute cat. And then I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> so it's like one of those dumb, weird moments, but it's important. So the cat leaves, goes to someone standing in a doorway. Mm-hmm. In a, in a darkened doorway and is playing with his fancy shoes. No, mm. not, he's not playing with his fancy. The cat is like pawing the shoes. Which are being worn by someone in the yes, doorway. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think perhaps you're over-explaining a little bit. <laughs> and just It's a crucial scene. I gotta set it up right. And meanwhile, uh, Holly and the woman are talking and she has a line which I think you liked. Uh, she says that, you know, she's upset by what she learned about Harry today because Calloway told her to. But she says that a person doesn't change just because you learn more. I, I just thought that was kind of interesting from like a... Do you agree with it? No. <laughs> don't you think that's a... Do you, don't you think it's naive to think that? I don't know. If you love someone completely, could that be true? Here's the thing. I think I think her her beliefs on love sort of don't take into account the possibility that somebody is a is a is predatory or is or is lying and is a, is a predator and is carefully constructing um a facade for you in order to trick you into doing what they want and that nothing was ever real between her and somebody like Harry i'm not saying that that was definitely the case but I just think her beliefs on love is like, if you know, it doesn't matter. I just think it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, but I don't agree. I don't think. What do you think? You think she's being naive? Maybe, maybe stubborn is a better word. She doesn't seem like a naive character. This character seems like she's been through a lot, but I think the love she had for Harry really, really meant something to her. And she wants to guard it from possible threats. And uh, I don't know, do you think do, do you think um, a person doesn't change just because you learn more? This is kind of a question of the heart of the movie uh, as uh, the idea of love held by her and the idea of love held by Holly kind of comes into conflict. And it's kind of an open question at the end, who's right? And it sounds like you're siding with Holly... I just don't know if a love based on a lie is that love. I don't know. It's like like this is a dumb example, but if like, you know, your favorite sweatshirt is it turns out to be made by like slave labor. You know. Does that mean you love the sweatshirt less? I think for me, yeah, I would not I would not buy from that company again. Maybe I'd donate the sweatshirt elsewhere yeah i think you know i, I definitely stop extolling its virtues and telling I me mean, obviously a person's not a sweatshirt but i've certainly had the experience that uh, i'm pretty good at researching things and researching people and often i've met somebody and gone home and did a little bit of research on them and found out things i'd rather not know which kind of has affected my opinion of them and lowered it but it are we just ex- capable of less love than than Anna in this movie who you know is it is she just more pure 
than we are, like in terms of the love she has for people, because for her, it's not, it's not changed by anything. I guess, is there anything you could find out about me that would make you love me less? If it turned out you were a serial killer or something, I think I would, I would feel like I never really knew you because what I know about you doesn't, doesn't jibe with that. Yeah, exactly. It would, it would, it would, it wouldn't feel, it wouldn't be you anymore. It wouldn't be you. And I guess in this context, you would say that if I was selling diluted penicillin and was basically causing the deaths of innocents, I'd basically be a serial killer. Kevin, are you trying to tell me something? I'm sorry you had to find out this way. <laughs> oh, this is so awkward. We're going to have to stop the podcast. <laughs> You're a serial killer. Also, isn't this isn't it crazy watching this movie during during COVID? I've seen this movie a few times and I feel like this is the this is the time where Harry's crime feels the most visceral. You know? Cuz when you're watching it and you're like, "Oh, that sucks." Like, I mean, I, you can buy penicillin at the store now, who cares? But like watching it now with with the issue of vaccines on the line, it feels very much Fresh and important. Yeah. yeah, it feels very timely. Feels very timely. And we are at the stage of the movie now, which is one of the most dramatic film entrances in the history of movies. What happens? The cat. The cat happens. The cat um well the cat already was there, but the cat's like the cat's standing in the doorway at this guy's feet. And um while he's leaving on his apartment, Joseph Cotton walking down the street, and you you know you can see this darkened darkened shadow in the doorway, and he realizes that someone's standing there with the cat, and he starts yelling at the guy. Um, he's just yelling at this darkened doorway, which feels like a an apt metaphor for his character in in the film, and um, somebody somebody hears all the yelling. Somebody in an apartment above and turns on their light and it shines down on the doorway. And what do they see, Kevin? See Harry Lime. Played was... by Orson Welles. Hell yeah. And Lime is first kind of surprised and maybe a little unhappy about this, but then he uh, smiles at Joseph Cotton. Yeah, it's like this great smirking smile, kind of like, oh, whoops. <laughs> so good. And uh, one, one, one thing that I kind of liked about this is that Joseph Cotton tries to run across the street to his friend and almost gets hit by a car doing so. So it's like it the scene almost mimics the fake death that Harry put together, you know, that that we never see actually happen, but we, we know to have happened. And, and that's what Holly's investigating. I thought that was a nice little touch. And then we get into a chase scene. Joseph Cotton is is chasing Orson Welles through the streets of Vienna. Shadows are flying off all the buildings. It's it looks incredible. And Welles gets away. Mm-hmm. Cotton immediately goes to the police. They don't believe him at first, but then they discover that in the vicinity of where this chase had occurred, there was a secret tunnel down to the sewer system, where uh, Lime very easily could have escaped. So at this point, they go to the cemetery and they dig up Lime's coffin to take a look at the body. 
and I was kind of wondering at this point, why did none of these police officers look at the body before it was buried? Not very good police work. Can you see Keith Morrison, Morrison like narrating this? Like, what investigators didn't know was that there were more secrets buried beneath the headstone of Harry Lyme. <laughs> when they open up the coffin, they do not see Harry Lyme. They see another body. Yeah, it's like some medical orderly who was giving them all the all the penicillin. And uh, so this guy was killed in his place. Now Harry Lyme's on the loose. The police are on alert. And uh, Joseph Cotton is off to see his friend. He uh, secures a meeting with him. And this is yet another, probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie. Uh, they meet at a big old Ferris wheel. And they ride the Ferris wheel. Uh, and this is not... In case you haven't seen the film, this is not the sort of Ferris wheel where there's little tiny cars where you sit right next to uh, your romantic partner and gaze lovingly in her eyes. It's not a no- It's not a notebook Ferris wheel. It's like a big Ferris wheel. It's a Ferris wheel where there's like a, a a little, basically a little room. Yeah. Where you're in with other people, but of course, it's just Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. That'd be funny if there was also like a family of tourists in the corner being like, oh, geez, don't make eye contact with these guys. It would also be really funny if it was one of those like seated Ferris wheels and they were just like, like kind of <laughs> uncomfortably squashed in together, giving each other monologues. <laughs> what do they talk about in this scene? They, it's basically, it starts out where it's just them kind of threatening each other. Orson Welles has this great kind of smirking confidence about him but he also seems kind of anxious by joseph cotton being there and at a certain point he even opens the doors to the ferris wheel and is kind of pointing some stuff out and you you think is he gonna push joseph cotton out and i kind of wondered why didn't he did you have a theory i maybe maybe to him uh cotton represents like his past that he's fond of and maybe the idea he used to have about who he was and, and what he stood for and it maybe his his last shred of humanity, maybe that's why he wanted him there in Vienna with him. Yeah, I didn't even understand that. Why did Harry Lyme ask Joseph Cotton to come to Vienna shortly before Lyme knew he was going to be faking his death? Did he did he um I don't know, maybe something happened that we don't know about that sort of forced him to fake his death in a hurry? Move up a timetable? And maybe he felt that Cotton was so loyal that he would be a great addition to his uh, League of Henchmen. I, I think, though, uh, what, what they also cover in this Ferris wheel scene is sort of talking about, you know, Holly's basic thing is like, how could you do this, basically? Like, why would, how could you kill people with this penicillin scheme? And Orson Welles gives a, you know, a big menacing speech about how, like, you know, would you, like, do you really care about other people? You know, do, He's either at the top of this Ferris wheel and they're looking down and the people on the ground just appear to be like little dots. And he says, would it really be that bad if one of these dots stopped moving and you knew that for every dot that stopped moving, you'd get 20,000 pounds? Would that really bother you all that much? Harry Lyme is like a villain for right now, I feel. He's all about making a buck. He's all about the hustle. He would fit in great in 2020. And uh, obviously he doesn't push holly out no and in fact he says we should meet again and talk later but when that happens be sure not to bring any cops along because that'd be really bad don't do it and then he makes a, a famous remark which why don't you share with us um uh 
Orson Welles says that, um, you know, it's not all bad. You know, this this turbulence in Vienna and all this violence that uh, Harry himself is perpetuating is not bad because um, in Italy during the Renaissance, there was uh, lots of war and violence and death. And it, you know, brought about the, the great the great artists and the great uh, cultural works. And um, in Switzerland, it was all brotherly love and fun and democracy. And it produced the cuckoo clock. Which is a famous line. Also completely historically inaccurate. There's a reason the Swiss guard guard the Vatican. That's all I'll say. Not super informed about that area of history, but I do know for a fact that that's apparently very inaccurate. <laughs> so so uh, we, there's one character in this that we didn't really discuss yet, but who kind of adds a sort of like humanity towards a lot of this. Because a lot of these characters are very cynical and kind of snappy even if they're the good guys. Who's that? Uh, there's a sergeant who's kind of an assistant to Calloway who is a big fan of uh, Holly Martin's books. And he happens to be played by the same actor who first played M in the James Bond movies. And so I was uh, cooking up in my mind kind of a shared universe thing where maybe this guy, this sergeant, who was an underling in post-war Vienna, Goes on to join Her Majesty's Secret Service and uh, becomes James Bond boss. Seemed very plausible to me. It seemed like there was nothing that could disrupt this theory. Well, I, I think what you're joking about right now, about disrupting the theory, actually is not a deal breaker. And I really like your theory. Everything's in the same universe. Okay, so basically, in order to get Holly to trap his old friend, Calloway makes a deal to get Anna safely out of Vienna. In exchange but the whole plan goes wrong because being a bumbling fool holly allows himself to be spotted by her on the train uh you know at the train station when she's looking out the window and she comes out and argues with him and sort of gets him to confess that he is going to sell his friend harry out and she's infuriated about this and, you know she's very glad at this point that her old lover is alive and she does not want to see him anymore but she's furious that Holly has betrayed Harry in this manner. And um, she tells him that she does not want to be part of his price. Um, and she tears up her train ticket and the train leaves with all her luggage. And, you know, she just kind of storms off, basically. So now now Holly's out once again because Anna didn't like his gift to her and he doesn't want to do it anymore. How does Calloway write the ship? Because he really wants to nail Harry to the wall. How does he get Holly back on board? Well, I'll take you to the airport so you can fly out of here. But first, if you don't mind, I got a quick stop to make. It'll just take a few minutes. It's the hospital where all of Harry's children victims are. And so he takes uh, Holly to this hospital. And when Holly sees the suffering Harry has caused, he decides to participate and trick Harry into meeting him. Do you think that if Anna had seen the hospital, she would have cared? Do you think she would have, that would have moved her? I don't think so. What do you think? I don't think so either. Do you think she's a bit of a sociopath like Harry? And that's perhaps why she. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think a sociopath's view of love is, is, is sort of what Anna and Harry espouse. Harry more so because Harry's kind of more like, oh, sorry, old girl, like, bye, and, like, screws her over. But she's kind of a, a lesser lesser 
sociopath or whatever. I mean, I don't mean the really technical term, but like she, she has a very like intense kind of limited view of love. And it's like, we talked earlier about why she may have been attracted to Holly. Why was Holly attracted to her? Maybe she reminded him of Harry. No, I mean, I, I think, I think, um, I think they connected over their shared grief. I think that was a two-way street. I don't think that was just Anna liking Holly as a Harry replacement. I think that was Holly liking Anna because she has a connection to her his friend and he he wants to help her. She's in trouble and and he want and, and and being kind of a good pulp hero, he you know, the pulp hero always gets the girl, right? Or or they mm. they get the lady and they they save the lady. So his his pulp hero instincts are um, are are up thanks to her, and and he's trying to follow that playbook of being like the chivalrous gentleman, but that's not that's not how the world works, basically. So Holly's back on board. He's back. Calloway at this point even admits that he likes uh, her, Holly's uh, storytelling uh, in his in his like Lone Rider of Santa Fe series. And like Holly just doesn't even care. Like at this point, he's like he's kind of a broken individual already because he's gone through so much and learned so much about his dear friend. And he probably is like looking back on all those years they had together as as, as friends and confidants. It's kind of like, did I ever really know this person? I wonder what I wonder what he might have overlooked in the past that could inform the present. Because you 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 think a guy like Harry probably didn't become like this overnight. No. And Harry must have been uh, kind of cunning and smart. So why do you think he agrees to go alone to a meeting with someone who he knows has already talked to the police about him? Do you think he really cares about Holly in his own way? Maybe more so than he does about most people? What makes you say that? Well, I mean, wouldn't that make you do that? (laughs) Doesn't love make you do stupid things? Like a love for your friend, a love for somebody you are romantically in love with. I mean, you take risks and you make yourself vulnerable. So you think he had a non-sexual love for Holly? I mean, I think there's evidence there, right? Mm. He seems to be his weakness. He's not going out on a limb for Anna. No, he's not. But this guy, maybe in a way he was kind of like his brother. I don't know. So he takes the chance and goes to meet Holly. Does it work out for Harry? No. Well, I mean, first let's set up the scene. It's just a beautiful, beautiful square in Vienna. You can see that there's soldiers posted in the shadows all over the place. You know, the cobblestones are glistening. There's a a quirky balloon salesman who almost Fs the whole thing up. And he's, balloon mein Herr. And it's like, get the hell out of here. Anna shows up. And she goes into the cafe where Holly is situated and she berates him. You know, she's like, you're doing what you're doing is horrible. You shouldn't be doing this. You need, you know, call it off basically. And then Harry arrives and she immediately yells for him to run. The police are here. And he, uh, he bolts. Um, The uh, soldiers chase him into the sewers and we get uh, just a wonderful, wonderful climax to the film. Very exciting, very beautifully shot. And the sewers look beautiful. I'm sure they don't didn't smell beautiful, <laughs> but it looked gorgeous. 
It looks gorgeous. It looks like a hellish underworld, but in the prettiest way possible. I mean, but also imagine the smell. I don't want to. <laughs> I I would, but I was also thinking I'm watching it because you know you don't you can't smell a movie. You're watching it and you're kind of like that. If you were a kid, wouldn't that be your dream to like just do hide and seek and play tag in that in, in the underground sewer tunnel system? Yeah, it'd be incredible fun. Go over the waterfall. You know, you can go through all the tunnels. I mean, like I would. Oh God. Um, and 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 as usual, because this is what he's basically been doing the whole movie. Holly is there participating in uh, the search and, and, and basically chasing Harry once more. And in the uh, midst of this chase, Harry shoots the nice sergeant who we talked about earlier and kills him. So give your theory as to how this dead man could still become James Bond's boss. My theory is that he didn't actually die. Think about this. This is a uh, post-war Vienna. The English are sharing the uh, the you know control of the city with the other major superpowers, um, and in order to have a very effective uh, guy who's going to run a spy agency or even be like a kind of a top main recruit into that early on, maybe he needs to lose his old identity. And what better way to do that than kill him off? Uh-huh. Okay, so it's a shared universe. It's a shared universe. M faked his death and then was reborn as M. Eh, okay, I'll buy it. What do you mean, eh? That was great. <laughs> it was your finest work. Yeah, my M fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Don't act like it's your first ever piece of M fan fiction. Oh, now you stop. But anyway, so yeah, so there are all these darkened doorways. Um you know what that scene reminded me of, weirdly enough? Uh, at the college I went to, there was a science building called Millington. And it was really gross. It was always full of roaches and stuff. But in the basement, there was this one room. And it had all of these little doors in it. Like, sl- more slender than a normal door. And I remember hanging out there at night and exploring some of them. And, like, they were, like, open and like when they're all open and like you could see the darkness within it just it just looks so creepy. I don't know why this building was like that. Um it's since been torn down, but why it, was it torn down? It was built in the 70s and they're trying to remodel that part of campus basically, but yeah, the the, the doors reminded me of that. And no like I always always felt like somebody was one day going to be like the doors weren't like it like that in the basement of Millington. Anya, what are you talking about? You hallucinated that. And it would turn out to be like some sort of like Lovecraftian horror in my mind. But yeah. But anyways, it's kind of a callback in this scene to the the um the portion of the movie where um Harry was the one with the advantage and he was the one in the in as the voice in the darkened doorway. And now he's the one being chased and, and he's uh he's being confronted with all these darkened doorways of his own and he's trying to figure out where to go. And there's a scene where he manages to give his pursuers the slip and crawl up uh, some spiral steps to, uh, and he reaches the level of the street, but he can't access the street because there are bars there blocking his ability to re-enter street level. And he reaches his fingers through the bars, but he can't get the bars loose and he can't free himself uh and i thought it was almost like 
his bile actions make it so that he belongs more in a sewer than he does among civilized people. Hmm. And so he can't rejoin that life or that culture. I guess I'm just wondering because it's it's interesting to me that this whole portion of the, the movie kind of is from Harry's perspective. We're seeing him confront challenges and him struggle through this chase scene. And like, what do you make of that? Is that making, is that an attempt to garner sympathy for Harry in a way as he's, as he's running away? Because I think we all tend to root for the underdog. And in, in this, he's very much couched as the underdog. Cause you see the sheer number of like military police that are coming after him. Like what, what do you make of that choice? We're not following Holly for most of this. We're following Harry as he's running. And you're seeing the scared look on Orson Welles' face, and we're see- we're seeing him calculating where to go. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting choice. I don't. I didn't feel any sympathy for him. Uh, it was like he was like a bad guy who was going to get caught. We all know he was going to get caught, and so if anything, it was somewhat satisfying to see him be afraid mm-hmm. because he he deserved it. He deserved to suffer a bit before he died. Damn. Did you feel some sympathy for him? You're stone cold, Kevin. I am. I got no sympathy for this this asshole. How about you? I'm not saying I had sympathy for the character because obviously he's a, a serial killer. As I as I established, he's a bad fella who put profit over human lives. But I just thought it was an interesting choice from the director to kind of, you know, focus on him. Although, I mean, this director went on, you know, did a Odd Man Out, which is basically like this scene, the movie where you have a guy being chased around. Um, after he robs a bank and it goes wrong. So maybe it was just kind of played to the director's interest in, ter- in terms of showing a man trying to escape who's desperate and will do anything to, uh, you know, get out of there, basically. What happens when Holly catches up with Harry? Well, so at this point, and, and actually in the bar scene that you were describing where he's poking his fingers through the uh, grate, you know, at this point, Harry has been shot. By Calloway after after he shot Calloway's assistant M, and um, Holly runs up and confronts him with a gun, and uh, it's a it's a it's a silence and and it, you know Harry's still armed as well but he's wounded, and it's a silent scene, and basically Harry and Holly exchange a look, and Harry kind of nods, and you hear a single gunshot. And uh, Calloway, who's back still crouching over uh, the body of M, looks up and is kind of startled and seems to be worried about Holly. But then he sees Holly emerging, you know, from the tunnel. And it's clear that, you know, he's just he's just shot and killed Harry. And I guess, I mean, I guess at the end, Harry wanted to die. rather He wanted to be killed rather than be captured. Do you, do you think that that was an act of love by Holly killing him rather than he's basically fulfilling his wish? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of themes here about friendship. And it's kind of interesting that the scenes about friendship are played between Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. Because at one point they were pretty good friends. But it, at another point, Welles felt somewhat betrayed by Cotton for some choices. Uh, Cotton made uh, Cotton... Uh, was one of the lead actors in a film Orson Welles made called The Magnificent Ambersons. And at one point, the studio took the film away from Orson Welles and wanted to recut it and graft a happy ending onto it. 
and Joseph Cotton agreed to participate in the filming of this happy ending, which uh, Wells viewed as a betrayal of their friendship and a betrayal of the project because it compromised the integrity of the project. So it's, it's their friendship was kind of broken over that, at least to some extent. So it, it's interesting to see them playing a scene like that, this about deep friendship, male love for one another, and feelings of betrayal between two men. I did not know that that adds a lot of depth here. And so this, this movie, the, uh, the Third Man, was filmed after that had happened. Yes. Wow. Wow. What, do, you, do we know why Cotton did that? He just thought uh, a job's a job, and he didn't really seem to, at least he didn't, he claimed he didn't really seem to think of it as a big deal. He didn't really understand how much it meant to Wells, you know, the artistic integrity of it. Right. Uh, the original cut of Magnificent Ambersons has been lost, uh, and it has a reputation as being one of the all-time great lost films. And right now, in the condition it's in now, that has been recut, it's badly flawed, but there are moments of just brilliance in it, and it just breaks your heart to imagine what it could have been. That is really sad. Yeah, Orson Welles seems like a very tragic figure. And the ending, the happy ending, is just falls completely flat and takes away a lot of the impact of the film. Right. Um, yeah, wow. Do you think it was right for Holly to kill Harry? I think Harry uh, needed to be punished. He needed to die. As opposed to be arrested? What do you think? Oh, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, like, isn't, I guess it's more of like, isn't that giving him what he wants? Well, keep in mind, uh, Harry did have a gun. Harry did have a gun. And so if he didn't give Harry what he wanted, it's it's possible that Harry would have shot him. And killed himself then. Mm-hmm. Right. So at the end, we, we kind of end where we begin in a way. We end at uh, Harry's funeral, his second funeral. And the usual gang's there, or at least some of the usual gang. And uh, Calloway gives uh, Harry, uh, Harry, Holly, I'm doing what Anna was doing. I'm mistaking the two. I think they gave them similar names on purpose here. Uh, but uh, Calloway gives Holly a ride uh, to the airport. But as they're driving out of this uh, tree-lined graveyard, um, Holly sees Anna walking away, and he wants to, you know, have a talk with her. He wants to say goodbye. How does that go? So he has Callaway uh, drop him off, and he stands and waits for the walking Anna to come by, uh, thinking that she will stop and talk with him. But she just walks right past him without even giving him a glance. And I think the real impact in this scene is is derived from the fact that it's such a slow burn, because when he parks and gets you know when he gets out of the car she's still quite far away so she's walking for a while towards him and you're just seeing her slowly 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 come closer and then she like it's as if he's you know it's he's he's not there basically to her Mm -hmm. he's he's not there and and she doesn't even flinch or turn and she walks past him and then he just lights a cigarette throws the match and that's the end of the film the end of the picture. Oh, it's so good. I love this movie so much. I love this movie so much. I give the third man five stars. Oh, there you go. Your turn. <laughs> um, 
What's a good what's a good pun? You'll go cuckoo for the third man. <laughs> it's a really it's a classic and 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 everybody should uh should give it a give it a watch. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.